That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 477 with my return guest, Don Howell. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I'm getting tired of doing that (laughs) that preface. There's got to be a shorter way. How about if I just go, welcome to the mental illness happy hour. I'm a jackass. Don't take this shit too seriously. Huh? Maybe I'll try that. Um... I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Don Howell. Uh, went back into the struggle in the sentence surveys. I hadn't gone through those in quite a while. We had a couple of months of those built up. And so uh, I've got some that I, I think you guys will like or relate to. This one is filled out by a guy who calls himself Jason and the Argonauts. And uh, his struggle with OCD, he writes, it's like being handcuffed to the worst person I've met. (laughs) About experiencing uh, dissociation, he writes, like I'm keeping my body alive for someone else to use. Oh, that's so good. Snapshot from his life, a thousand voices in my head, but none of them match the one coming from my throat. Wow, those are good. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, and give my best to the Argonauts. A lot of people aren't, a lot of people are huge fans of Jason, but don't care for the Argonauts, which puts, that puts Jason in an uncomfortable position. This is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself the woman walking away who you can still hear talking and about experiencing racial or cultural bias she writes my anger is my sad's bodyguard that is so good it's funny how underneath anger i think 99 percent of the time is either fear or sadness or both this is 
uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself, same survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself, we all float until we don't. Um, he writes about racial and cultural bias. I'm a middle-aged cis white male. I've always worked my ass off to get the nice things I have, but it's always assumed that I wouldn't be where I'm at if I were a man of color or a woman, white or of color. I know white men have done atrocious, unforgivable things throughout history. I can see that I am now the minority and I get none of the benefits, such as job preference due to affirmative action. I still live in a shitty rented house and drive a shitty car that is paid off. Nothing was ever given to me that I know of because I'm a white male. I know there are a lot of people who who are white cis males who feel this way. And I would ask them to consider a couple of things. That maybe, while, while you may not, to your knowledge, have been given something because of the color of your skin or your gender, something might have not been withheld from you. And it's hard sometimes to know that there is something there that is actually the absence of something. You know, the lack of being pulled over by police with guns drawn. The absence of walking into a store and immediately being eyed as a suspect. Um, as my trans uh, friend shared with me this week, something that she experienced, um, having somebody just walk up to her in a grocery store park, parking lot and tell her that she's an abomination. Uh, walking into a bathroom and a woman clutching her child as if she's in there to attack children. So it's not so much that it's what you've been given as I think what you haven't had taken away. And it's kind of hard for if you've never been a fish out of water, it's hard for the fish to know that it's swimming in water. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. And this is not to minimize. This is a really important thing. This is not to minimize the struggles that you have, the pain that you feel. Those are all very, very real. I think it's important to just, in the context when we think about ourselves in society as a whole, to keep these other things in mind, to keep other people's experiences in mind so that we can be a more connective, communicative, inclusive society, not to put make it into a contest or to make somebody feel guilty for what they have. Because ultimately, I think for society to function well, people need to feel seen and respected and that's that's the goal. It's not for one person to be favored over another person. So my two cents on that. This is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, uh, actually, this is a gender fluid person. Uh, they call themselves uh, Earl. <laughs> this is such a, such a out there one. I love the squeal of my new baby guinea pig at 3 a.m., I love it. I love it. 
this is another one that is just uh, certainly out there on the on the fringes in terms of what I've heard of of loves. A woman who calls herself Urban Druid. She writes, "I love the smell of skin after someone has been in the sun." That is a great one. Love Christmas lights. Me too. And then here's where where uh, it uh, gets unique. I love crows and pigeons and the rats that live under my house. I love saying good morning to a dead seagull near my work every day. That is is so fantastic. That is so fantastic. And by fantastic, I mean I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. If you have never tried online counseling from the comfort of your own home, your own recliner, uh, I highly suggest you check it out. They have a slew of qualified, vetted therapists. And uh, just go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. We are also sponsored today by Early Bird CBD. Uh, I've shared in the past that insomnia is something that I've struggled with. And I've tried many, many things. And their nighttime CBD gummies do the trick and continue to do the trick. But uh, Early Bird CBD has a lot more than just nighttime gummies, which are THC uh, free, by the way. Um, It's an online CBD marketplace and they have vetted and tested the products that they sell because they know that there is a huge, huge variety in the quality of CBD products out there. And they felt like there was a need for somebody to go through it and find the best quality ones so they could create a marketplace and uh, go check it out. Go to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental and also use the disc code count. (laughs) I always have trouble pronouncing this. Also use the discount code mental for 20% off your first order. And if you have any questions, uh, just contact them through the website and they'll be happy. I, I, you can also call the phone number. I believe there's a phone number there and they'll be happy to help you find the right product. So uh, once again, go to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental and use discount code mental for 20% off your first order. Feel better today and live better tomorrow with Early Bird CBD. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, 
Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then uh, finally, this is uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Mac Meyer. Um, Snapshot from his life. Oftentimes, I stew on my life and pace my room nervously, wanting to feel a good cry. I slap myself in the face as hard as I can and pull my hair and yell until I start crying. Sometimes I end up cutting myself. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, it feels like drinking a chocolate smoothie. And when you get to the bottom, you realize you've been drinking horse shit the whole time. And then you keep ordering horse shit smoothies because they still taste good. It feels like looking... Oh, and then about his love addiction. It feels like looking for the right town to call home. After moving all the furniture and changing addresses and finding new friends and hangout spots, after all, this feels less of a home than the last town. And then about his sex addiction, porn doesn't hug back or ask how you're doing. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies well, Maybe listen thanks people. for coming in <laughs> i'm here again with retired sex crimes detective don howell thanks for uh, making the the slog up here from from Orange County, I, I put some questions out. Oh, and first, I want to um, give a plug to the the books that you have out. The most recent one has nothing to do with sex crimes. It's called Lessons from a Twenty First Century Samurai: The Seikin Way, Seikian Way, yeah. Seikian Way, uh, completing the circle, a true story. And then the other two you have is Sex Crimes: A Step by Step Guide to Effective Interviewing of Victims and Suspects based on 27 years of working hundreds of cases. And then the other one is uh, for parents called Beyond Stranger Danger, Smart Parents Raising Safe Kids. Um, I put some questions, or I should say asked for questions uh, on social media, told them that I was going to be interviewing a sex crimes uh, detective, and did they have any questions for you? And we got quite a few, so let's uh, let's just jump 
jump into them. Absolutely. Let's do it. What advice would he give to himself when he was a rookie? That's a real interesting one because I, I got out of college. I lived at home. I went to school, got a, a four-year degree in law enforcement stuff. And like four weeks later, I was driving a police car around, you know. And so I thought I actually knew something, you know, because, wow, this must be, you know. Uh, and the first day on the job was absolute disaster. I realized I knew nothing. I mean, because it's a people job. It's not an academic job, you know. And uh, the first day was bad. <laughs> it was it was bad. And I finally realized I had to set my college degree aside and watch my training officer and see how he deals with people and things. So I think the advice I give myself is don't get too full of yourself. Keep your ego in check. <laughs> and watch what other people are doing and learn from others and realize that you can do the job. Law enforcement is a real negative environment. Just generally speaking, it's a negative environment. And you have I, to, I think that's an understatement. Well, <laughs> and, and you have to understand uh, that, that you have to find somebody uh, in that environment who will tell you that you can do this job. And it happened to me once in college. In my college. One of the professors took me aside one day and said, you can do this. Believe in yourself. You can do this. And with that reassurance, I had to say, I can, I can do this. As long as I'm ready to adapt and be flexible and watch other people, yeah, you can do this job. So that's the advice I'd give myself is just trust in yourself that you can do it. Great. Um, who do you think murdered Elizabeth Short, uh, in the parentheses, the Black Dahlia? Uh, a case that has gone on solved for what sixty years? Sixty years, and back in the forties. Yeah. Uh, boy, I wish I knew that I'd be a great author at that one. I could write that book any time. There's a lot of speculation about uh, the amount of injuries that she had, and who would have had to have been able to cut her body in half and that kind of stuff. You know, was it a doctor or a veterinarian or somebody? I, I, I'm not real hot on that that theory. You know, that, that can take you off course if you're looking for somebody who. Is just a butcher or just, you know, worked in a butcher shop or just, right. you know, lived in the Midwest where you clean deer and, you know, you killed that, right. that kind of stuff. It takes your, uh, your focus away from, from other uh, possible suspects. Um, obviously somebody with a lot of, uh, anger issues and a lot of, uh, self-entitlement issues. The problem I have with that, uh, the case, is that because it was in the 40s, there was no real communicating with other agencies, okay, and figuring out who has. This guy doesn't, cannot start off at that level of violence. There has to be a progression from someplace. And how do we find that? Well, today we have, you know, FBI and BICAP and the Internet and all kinds of things, right? Uh, and, and so we can make those connections. But back then you didn't have it. And so they worked it as a solo. And I, there was some information, uh, as I've read over the years about it, that when the killing stopped here, something similar happened, and I think it was in Pennsylvania, uh, as if perhaps he had moved and there was a similar series there. Uh, I don't know, but the, the, the answer is, direct question is, I don't know who did it. But I wouldn't be surprised if he just went dormant. You know, you look at killers like BTK, everybody thinks that once they used to think that when the, the a killer started killing at that level, that they stay at that level. Well, that's no, no, that's a, that's an urban legend. That's myth. That didn't happen. They stop. The, 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 the teeter totter, the emotional teeter totter in their head uh, balances and they stop. That, uh, that, that's kind of amazing to me because I would imagine the compulsion has to be so strong that you would do something like that that how how could you then suffocate that for another decade so that that must i know take you're... tremendous will or or it, does something come along in their life that 
changes them a bit or are they still the same person and are they just gritting their teeth and getting through the compulsion? Well, uh, what I think the issue is, okay, and it's just me, okay, and, and, and I use all this behavior stuff just to help me get confessions. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything. But to me, when people try to apply logic to an illogical set of circumstances, it doesn't work. So you say logically it would seem like if he's at that, that level, he would stay at that level. Like compulsion is overwhelming. Well, I don't think so. Okay. If think of it, people just don't snap. Okay. They slowly spiral downward. And so if a spiral is going down, he will, that's why we see sex crimes. It'll start off kind of lightweight and then progress to something mm-hmm. heavier. And then as they start to stabilize again, they, they might back down to something less. Like have a guy exposing himself, then he's raping, then he's back to exposing himself, that kind of stuff. Is it that they scare themselves or they're afraid of oh, getting caught not or, at all. or their moral code kicks in? Oh, I doubt they have a moral code. Uh, and they're not afraid of anything. Uh, they're, they're, again, you have to think of it. There's rape fantasy and, and rape rationale. They're kind of the same thing. They're kind of intertwined. But they rationalize what they're doing to make it okay. Uh, it's okay. It's some reason it's okay. Uh, and so they don't have a moral code that this is wrong. Even the ones who pretend like, oh, catch me if you can, kind of not. Oh, that's a bunch of crap. It's all just, they're just trying to get attention and, and power and scare the whole uh, society, the whole city kind of a thing. Uh, they really don't care. These guys don't play well with others. They are incredibly narcissistic where they think that they are so great that everybody else is beneath them. And so it's okay to abuse people who are, who are beneath you. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a social qualm about them. But what happens is if they go out of balance for some reason, okay, the, the emotional teeter-totter goes out of whack, then they will act out. And depending on how out of whack it is, it'll tell you how, how crazy they will get, okay? Well, once that stabilizes... Okay, then they don't have a need to do it anymore. It's an emotional imbalance kind of thing. And they feel justified in doing what they do. Think of BTK. Now, I, I just know what I read about BTK, you know, whatever his real name is. I have it written down here someplace. Uh, Dennis Rader, okay? He was butchering people, going in their houses, hanging them up, but, you know, he's a, all families and butchering kind of stuff. Total sadist. Well, yeah, he's got issues, uh, to say the least. But ultimately, he becomes the city's code enforcement officer. So now he's in a position of authority, of power. He tells people, mow your yard, pick up your trash, that kind of stuff. And the way I would approach him in interview, I'd say those two things are equal to him. Telling you people to cut your grass because your house looks horrible and murdering people are the same thing to him. He has no no control, no way of knowing which is strong, which is better, which are worse. There's no proportion with, with him. And so once he got a job where he had some level of power... That's all he needed. It satisfied his, his need for power. It stabilized him, perhaps financially and stuff. But he was again a guy who was, he was uh, in the Boy Scouts. He's lead, Boy Scout leader, church leader, that kind of stuff. Looked yeah. normal, uh, but how do you pick him out of society? You know, how can the justice system fail the people it serves? How can it be improved? What stands in the way of that progress? Well, how can they? <laughs> how can they fail? They do that routinely. I think. Uh, the the issue is I, I see it as sort of a credibility issue with the court system. Uh, they've tried to create a system that's fair to everybody, but fair more to the the, the accused than anybody else. And and in, in, again, theory, in theory, that's a good thing. I think. What happens though is in an attempt to be fair, you limit the truth. You don't, you know, I'm not allowed to go to court and just tell my story. Okay, every trial is won or lost in the pretrial motions which people don't hear about. It's done back in chambers, uh, usually where 
where the lawyers get together and they decide which evidence is going to be admissible, which testimony, which, you know, which DNA sample or which, you know, fingerprint or whatever it is is going to be admissible. And you can lose half of your evidence in the pretrial motions. And what is the cause for limiting the amount of evidence or uh, witnesses? Is it because of there are so many court cases and they need to expedite things? No, no there's, there's a couple of sections in the evidence code that talks about is evidence more prejudicial than probative? Okay, so... <sighs> Uh, in the Rodney Alcala case, okay, Rodney's been you know, a serial killer. We've convicted him three times in Huntington Beach, okay, for, for killing Rob and Sam. So, in one of the trials, the very first trial, we, were, we brought in uh, a witness who had been uh, kidnapped, raped, and almost murdered by him. She was a little girl at the time, okay, and said, This is, or that was what he'd done before. We brought in a, uh, a woman he had kidnapped. Forget the first part. The other one, he kidnapped, uh, took her out in the desert to kill her, but he, she's a street kid. She gets out of it kind of thing. Uh, he gets convicted of that. At the trial, they bring her in to show how, how he behaves, okay? He's convicted, sent to death row. The court decided that that wasn't fair to him, okay? This is where it's too prejudicial versus probative, that the jury was more likely to convict him on that prior case than on the one we have currently. And so that was, it was too prejudicial. So they wanted that evidence removed. So we had to retry him again without that evidence, without that testimony. Okay. So the idea of, of, uh, being too prejudicial versus probative, uh, if the judge says, now that's too prejudicial, they'll just convict him on that. Uh, then they'll just kick that out. But, but it, it sounds like it was a similar action, but that seems it, totally Exactly, Relevant. but it's not similar enough. It has to be what what uh, if it's a signature crime or something. There's all kinds of rules for signature crime. It has to be within ten years. It has to be almost identical. Da 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 da. But we see it all the time now in, in some of the 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 Me Too movement cases where there's dozens, if not hundreds, of victims, but only a few are allowed to testify. Okay, those other ones are being excluded during the motions because they are not considered similar enough to the ones that are being or, tried. Or they're out of statute, or there's yeah, there's something different about them. Uh, to show that it's a signature crime, you, well, that's a tough one. That's Talk about one. The, the, the difference between MO and signature. Uh, or, or whatever the, the, well, the lingo. The lingo is. would be, uh, for me, there's a difference between MO and fantasy. This is why it gets difficult in, in, in sex crimes, okay? Uh, MO is modus operandi. It's how a person would rob a bank. You know, he he, he uh, puts on a ski mask, takes a gun, gives them a note, you know, that kind of thing. You'll see that over and over and over because it's successful. It works for them, okay? It's, and that can change over time as they get it can. better. It can, yeah. Uh, right. It can, but it stays kind of this kind of similar. You know, if they're successful with it, they'll keep it. In sex crimes, uh, there's what I call the difference between MO and fantasy, okay? Uh, fantasy is what drives the crime. They have a pre-existing sexual fantasy that basically says, if I force this woman to have sex with me, she'll fall in love with me and will live happily ever after. It's kind of nonsense, but uh, that's the fantasy. So MO becomes that part of how do they put themselves in contact with potential victims. So it, the MO serves the, the fantasy. Right, serves the fantasy, but the, fan, the MO can change all the time. They can call an alcohol service. They can kidnap a girl off the street. Uh, they can break into a house. They can do all kinds of things. And the, day before, the days before DNA, the way we would tie cases together is through once psychological capture, once the capture was complete, uh, the guy of, would, of the uh, of suspect the of the victim. Okay, there's, there's oh, I see. Yeah, okay. where the victim by, by the uh, suspect. Right. Yeah, where the suspect says, "Do what I say, or else." And she says, "Okay, right. don't kill me." Okay. Once that happens, he acts out the fantasy, and we'll see similarities in the fantasy. 
doesn't make any difference how he came in contact with them. Uh, right. Did he kidnap them off the street? We had one, um, uh, his name was Martini, I think his name was, raped a bunch of women in Orange County. And he would, he, at one time, he pretended to be a truant officer and took girls off to a building where he raped them. One time, he just pulled up to a, a group of kids at gunpoint, give me one of the girls. Uh, he was breaking into houses, waiting for the moms to come home. His, his M.O. was all over the place. But once... Capture was completed and the sexual assault started. The fantasy acted out. And it was pretty similar. The dialogue was pretty similar. He he was pretty much acting out the same thing. So that would be his signature. Mm-hmm. To me, it would be his signature. Well, the problem is, is that varies. Okay, if you think about any fantasy you might have, be it sexual or financial or whatever, you know, you sort of improve on it, you tweak on it over time. You know, mm-hmm. you want to add to it or do whatever. And again, depending on how out of balance you are emotionally. You can make it more intense or less intense, like turning up the volume or turning down the volume, depending on what you need. So it's real difficult to find. So something that triggered them might make an episode more violent than uh, a previous one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do fantasies escalate? Uh, they can. Yeah. Yeah, they can. They can get more involved. Um, and you can, what really sort of mucks it up is you have a difference, differences between a power rapist and an anger rapist. Uh, but you have them, it, it's, it's on a sliding scale. You can push a power rapist into anger, and anger can slide back into power because, it's again, it's on a scale of 1 to 100. They kind of slide back and forth. So, yeah, you can trigger the fantasy. The fantasy become anger, uh, which just means I'm going to hurt you, hurt you, hurt you because I, I don't care about my fantasy anymore. Um, we had a, a, and, and would that be a power or an anger rapist? If he's just hurting you just to hurt you, he's anger rapist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You remember? You remember? I know a guy named Joseph Son. If you're into Austin Powers movies, you know Joseph Son. Okay. He he played the the character Random Deeds or Random Task. He's a big Korean man who threw a shoe in the mm-hmm. movie uh, Gold Member. Okay. Joseph Son was also for a short time in his life an anger rapist. Okay. He's in prison now. I arrested him mm-hmm. and sent him to prison. Okay. Uh, and and he's getting far fewer roles. Yeah, not very many. I think he's performing in the in the prison theater or something. Um, but he and a, an associate kidnapped this woman. We did a forty eight hour segment on it some years ago, where he kidnaps this woman, and it's a the story is so horrendous you can't clean it up enough to talk about it. Okay, uh, but there were two guys raped this woman. Okay, uh, and he was the anger rapist. I mean, he was obviously just beat her, beat her. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Even the sexual acts were were in a sequence where it was obvious that he was acting out in anger. He was mad at somebody. There was no sexual fantasy or no need to ride off into the sunset and be happily ever after. The second suspect was more of a follow-the-leader rapist. And when we got down to the, the conversations and the dialogue, the, the girl told us this. The, this guy was really mean. This guy wasn't wasn't so bad. For rapist, he wasn't as bad right. as the other guy. Right. And so we knew he had two different personalities working in the same group, which meant son was dominant and the other one was subordinate, which you usually see in like a, a brother, half-brother, cousins kind of a relationship. Like the uh, Hillside Strangler. Hillside Strangler, something where the other one can, can dominate the, the younger one, yeah. Was that the case with Leonard Lake and uh, who is it? Ng, Joseph Ng. Ng. Joseph Ng. No, that was uh, a different one. Okay. No, no, no. In my case, uh, hey, Joseph's son is a whole different thing. Um, okay. Um, so do do we feel like we uh, covered uh, the thing about the justice system? I feel like we... we yeah, it's enough. It's such a, a giant issue. Uh, how do you make it better? I, d- I don't know. Cause I, okay. yeah. What's the line between recognizing someone is damaged and needing help and recognizing someone who has a kink that is illegal for dumb reasons and recognizing a monster who needs to be put down? <laughs> Boy, that is a... 
A lot of emotion in that one, huh? As a part of working sex crimes, okay, I got real involved in, in fetishes, is a study of fetishes, okay? And because most people have a fetish, be it the diaper pail people or the pain and pleasure people or the I want to have sex with roadkill people or whatever it is, those people, they have a fetish and it's just a fetish and that's okay, be it balloon popping or whatever it is. And it's harmless, be the furries, you know, there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of them, okay? And it's completely harmless. Sometimes you'll find people inside that that have that are committing crimes, but uh, but usually not, okay? And so you just look at their behavior and what is their 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 thought process. I have this, this interviewing system I do when I talk to a suspect that if they sort of meet the criteria, the five trademarks of, of, of a suspect interview, it tells me, yeah, they're defining themselves as a sex offender. Wh- which they, are? If, what are the five criteria? They'll always uh, diminish the severity of the event. They'll blame the victim to some degree. They'll try to interview me or go off on tangents. They'll never tell me 100% of what happened, and they won't talk about crimes they don't already know. And okay. think of Bill Clinton. You know, when, yeah. when he was with Monica, did he ever, you know, did he diminish? Well, it wasn't really sex. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was her fault. She kept coming to my office. You, kidding? you got the U.S. military behind you. You couldn't keep her out of your office. That's craziness, right? right? Uh, he kept deflecting, 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 and finally said, write your questions down for me, and I'll decide which ones I want to answer. Right. Did he ever tell us what happened? <clears throat> never. And did he tell us about other women he was involved with? No, never. Okay, so he meets that criteria. So in my mind, he's a sex offender from behavior. Mm-hmm. But we get a lot of guys who commit sex crimes that don't meet that criteria. They get drunk, they do something stupid. They're on a three-day meth high, they do something stupid. It doesn't mean they're not criminals. Okay, It doesn't mean you don't send them to jail anyway. Uh, but behaviorally, they're not really sex offenders. And you go, what do we do with them? Do we send them away forever, or is there some way to to deal with that uh, the underlying behavior, the drug use, or whatever? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, feel that Trump meets the the criteria um, <laughs> based on the allegations against him? And I know this is not a court of law, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but what do you when you hear the allegations against him and all the elements of his personality that you have seen on display? What thoughts come to mind for you? Well, uh, he, he got a, an ego the size of all outdoors, okay, and, and which gets in his way a lot. And I think he's just so incredibly self-entitled that he just, you know, he, the way he talks to some women, the way he supposedly walk into the dressing room with the beauty pageants and that kind of stuff, okay, uh, and the way he just feels like uh, women should just have sex with me, be it the porn star or whoever it is kind of thing. It's just a giant ego need. I don't know that he would ever force anybody. You know, would he hold a gun or a knife to somebody? Would he get him? There's no indication he ever got anybody drunk to passed out and had sex with him, nothing like that. There's no indication he has a fantasy of riding off into the sunset with anybody, even the mm-hmm. porn star. It was just a one-nighter or, hey, I scored, I left, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. There, he doesn't really meet the criteria. He meets the criteria of a tremendous ego that is mm-hmm. – you know, scary. You right. know, it's really scary uh, at times. Uh, but I don't think he meets my criteria as being a sex offender. I see. Um, and so what is the line between recognizing? Uh, so I, I got you off on a tangent by asking you about the, the five traits when you win the oh, okay. when criteria when you interview someone. Well, that is that is the line. OK, because uh, I've interviewed guys uh, who who have said, yeah, I I. <laughs> I, I did this thing, or I do this thing, okay? If I'm into kinkiness, some sort of kinky balloon. You know, we've done the balloon poppers and the furries and all those kind mm-hmm. of people. And I was uh, a member of the diaper pail fraternity, uh, people who pretend to be babies and stuff. And there's the adults who want to tend for the babies, and the babies want to be tended by the adults, right. that kind of stuff. Uh, 
and it, it's it's just role play to them. Right. It, it, there, there's no. I would. They would never force anybody. They right. would never. There, there's no idea of. Uh, I'm going to dominate this person. And they're going to fall in love with me. There's none of that right. criteria. And if you talk to them, if you and if you talk to them. With just a little bit of respect, they'll tell you everything you want to know. They'll tell you what right. they are because they're just happy to have somebody talk to them and not make fun of them. Right. Okay. Because uh, we had a case years ago with a guy who was rescuing diapers from the trash trucks because he didn't mm-hmm. want them compacted with other trash. And I talked to him at great length, and he was that was his fetish was use soiled diapers. He liked the consistency and odor of them, and he had been victimized as a child. And it's a long story with him, uh, but he's not a sex offender. Right. Uh, th- th- this this paraphilia was controlling his life and interfering with his life, so it was mm-hmm. a problem. But it wasn't a problem that he was a sex offender, right? It, it was. You know. and, and what a uh, great example of the difference between someone whose whose kink is harming other people and somebody whose kink is not harming other people, and the difference between someone whose kink may be harming themselves. And that it's taking energy away from their life. They're becoming ob- right. obsessed with it. And to me, those are th- kind of three different categories when you're, yeah. when you're asking yourself, you know, if you have some type of uh, you know, sexual thing that, that you're questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the questions to me would be to ask, am I hurting anybody? And am I, and am I degrading the quality of my life because of, of you know, am I obsessed? With, okay. With when you deal with sex offenders, okay, right. what we look at is is if a sex offender has a paraphilic behavior, okay, they usually have three or four, sometimes fourteen, who knows, you know, uh, and one is dominant and the others are, are subordinate. So it might be rape, might be dominant, and the rest are subordinate. Um, when you're talking, talking about fantasy role playing, fantasy. Well, you're talking about somebody who, um, okay, we had a guy named Glenn, okay, and he was into touching women's rear ends. He was had a butt fetish. Mm-hmm. Real simple, he had a butt fetish, okay? And he would do this clandestinely. The women are shopping, and mm-hmm. he'd come up and touch him on the butt. And uh, after a while, adult women were hitting him so hard that the, the, the pain was getting to him. So he started prog- regressing to smaller, younger children, mm-hmm. kids who couldn't hit him as hard, okay? Uh, and this 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 fetish would overcome him. You know, we get times where you had is a, to a, a level of being a compulsion. He had to grab a kid and do whatever. Uh, and so he was being arrested for child molest. But he really wasn't a child molester. He had a, a butt fetish, okay? Right. And that's just how I interviewed him. Okay, you're not a child molester. You just you got a fetish that's really overwhelming your life. And also, even, even though technically he was molesting a child. Right. He, he's molesting a child. There's no right. doubt about it. But he's not really a sex offender in my criteria. He's got right. a fetish. And the two kind of blended together there. Mm-hmm. Occasionally what you'll get is somebody who will rape. And also has subordinate fetishes, but they're two, they're separate things. Yeah. Just because he's into kinkiness or he's into like wearing diapers or the furry right. or something like that, that's a separate thing. Right. You know, it's like you know he'd be a rapist and be on a bowling team. Yeah. You know, they're they're two separate things. So you got to separate those out during the interview. Yeah. And and uh, important to state, and it may be overly obvious, but the, the fetishes and role playing can be a healthy, intimate way for two consenting adults to express themselves and to um uh have have intimacy and you know the the go ahead you were going to say something no no yeah. I, I i will go along with that uh, if you say that because again people who knows what people do in their bedrooms right. now in my early early uh, uh, uh lectures or my, my my studies of sex offenders uh we talked with a guy named bob morneau who 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 
who was like the predecessor for the behavioral science unit at the FBI, and he talked about all kinds of things. He said, how do we know what people do in their bedrooms? And, and what I have to do and what cops have to do is enforce the law, not your own personal belief systems. Right. And, you know, which is difficult sometimes, you know, especially back in the 70s. You know, you're not supposed to do it that way. You did it with the lights on? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, right? right. Uh, so you had to be sure not to to uh, enforce your own personal beliefs. Yeah. Right. Hmm. What does he think about the concept often espoused by pedophiles uh, of, of child or otherwise pornography, keeping them from acting on their urges and going out and hurting a child, aside from the fact that pornography has already hurt a child, of course? It's all a bunch of BS. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, heterosexual men, some of them look at Playboy and some do not. It doesn't mean one's more heterosexual than the other. Okay, it's, 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 And the same thing with pedophiles. And pedophilia is really rare. True pedophilia is pretty rare, in my opinion. Uh, but you have the same thing with pedophiles. Some look at porn and some don't. You know, it's, you know, it's just a, that may satisfy and may not. But it's just an excuse to be allowed to look at, at, at porn. Because the underlying, if, if you are a pedophile, understand, pedophilia requires a true sexual preference, preference, for pre-puberty children, preference for puberty, as opposed to somebody who can perform with any victim of opportunity. Two completely different people. The second one's a rapist. The first one is somebody who is was born with uh, with the uh, a sexual preference for children, for pre-puberty children, not older children. And that's really rare stuff. It's really really rare stuff. I would, and those people would never hurt a child. You know, they don't they don't think they're hurting a child. Uh, they establish long term relationships. Yada yada yada. Um, I would suspect that those that are saying, let me look at the child porn, therefore I won't uh, attack a child, <laughs> they're not really pedophiles. I, I would suggest there's somebody, there's something else. Uh, and that's why they're trying to, it's a rational. still dangerous. Well, it's, it's, still, it's oh, still, very dangerous, very yes. active. Yes. But they're probably child rapists who, who want to justify their behavior by saying, well, it's your fault. Right. It's somebody else's fault because you don't let me look at child porn. Right. <laughs> no. I mean, no, 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 no. That's, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> Was he molded? Was he able to find balance or help outside of work for the experiences he had to deal with on the job? And if so, where? Any recommendations regarding resources for those currently working in the field who need support? Well, that's a that's a big one. Uh, some people would say I still need help, uh, even though I've been out of that business for a while. Uh, and I might agree with them at times. It, it can sort of uh, tweak the way you think, you know. Uh, in what way? <sighs> Well, in a, in a good way, it, it made me realize that anything that I had fantasized about as a kid growing up, you know, the, the two Swedish twins in the hot tub, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, you know, uh, that's nothing compared to what people are actually doing, okay? So mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm really okay in that regard, you know? Uh, but when you live in a world that is, it is so twisted where people are trying to rationalize having sex with three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and I work the physical abuse side of child too, where people have uh, child abuse where they're setting their kids on fire and those kind of things and child murder stuff, it, it really uh, it gets through the little force field, the emotional force field you put out around you, and it starts to affect you where you just you get depressed and it affects the neurons in your brain and those kind of things. Yeah, it can have a negative impact on you. The way to, to get around that is to have some activity outside of uh, that I have my own kids you know and they're mm. they're grown up now uh and you just have a good time realizing that the that the world really isn't that bad mm. you know you need to get the kids in little league and stuff where you're with other parents and people who aren't talking about sex offenders and paraphilias right. and that kind right. of stuff and realize that you can get so 
caught up in your little sex crimes world that you realize that's really just a part of society. It's not the, the most of it. So you got to find a way out of it. I'm also part of my city's trauma support team. Uh, I was for 20 years and where we dealt with trauma issues and how to, to, to debrief people and that kind of stuff. So we did a lot of debriefing of ourselves. Uh, you're talking about dealing with uh, people on the law enforcement side? Yes, the cops oh, are traumatized, okay. yeah. Okay. They offer ball shooting stuff for the child dies in your arms, that kind of stuff, yeah. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. I, it, I, it, I would imagine a lot turn to alcohol and other ways to, to check to, out. To, anything to deaden the pain, yeah. 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 I still remember his last appearance. Great guest. I'd love to hear him expand more on the way the system handles actual uh, pedophiles. Um, I think we've touched on that a, uh, a yeah. little bit. You talked about the difference between a child rapist and right. a true pedophile. Yeah, and pedophilia, again, is so rare. We don't really see it that often, you know, and, and it comes, pops up kind of in a strange way sometimes. Uh, but being a pedophile is not illegal. There's no crime against being a pedophile. If you act out on that and molest a child, then that, that acting out is illegal. So they don't really make that distinction in court. You know, I, I try to make it. When so I, if it stays in your head, that's fine. Yeah. If it stays in your head, that's fine. Some people can be that, like being in the closet. You know, right. I'm a child molester by staying in the closet. That's fine. And I've talked to people who say that. So yeah, I just don't act out on it. Yeah. I had a guy uh, email me one time and, yeah. and talked about it. And and he moved out into the country because he could right. feel the urges to touch his uh, niece were coming over him. And uh, I thought, you know, that guy is a hero. He didn't choose what turns him on, but he did choose how to handle it, and he mm-hmm. applied a moral code to it. Absolutely, and, and, and congratulations to him. If he realizes that is my sexual preference and it's not acceptable, I don't want to do that, then good for him. Yeah. You know, if he has that kind of insights, a lot of them don't. You know? Is he proud of his accomplish, accomplishments? Does he always find himself wishing he did more, and how does he find peace? Oh, those aren't big questions. Oh, no, no big questions there. I don't know that, that my personality allows me to actually be proud, you know, like I'm really proud of this. Uh, I really enjoy solving mysteries. You know, I worked, uh, one of my assignments here recently was I spent three and a half years at the Orange County Cold Case Homicide Task Force working cold cases. Uh, and so solving a cold case, that's, oh, that's fun. That's lots of fun. But then there's always the next one. And to me, it's always the next one, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, once I get it solved, let's move on to the next one, you know. Uh, and so do I wish I can do more? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's always more. That's why I'm almost 70 years old and I'm still working. You know, I work part-time now. Um, uh, so, yeah, could I do more? Yeah. Am I proud of it? Yeah. Uh, some of the things, like I found I found eight um, parentally abducted children. Some were longest was missing 12 years. I found a milk carton kid. Wow. You know, those kind of, you know, which is like incredible. They only did milk cartons for a year and a half. You know, and I found one of those kids one time. Are those those things to be proud of? Oh yeah, absolutely. But again, I don't I don't know that I can uh, walk around and say, "Hey, you should give me a medal for that." Because to me, it's like, okay, let's go find another one. <laughs> let's yeah. go do another one. That's my personality. Just go do more, do more. Do you find yourself still learning? Yes, absolutely. Can you recall some of the most recent things that you've said? Oh, aha! You know, note to self. <laughs> <laughs> What I find is I keep trying to apply the, the, this, this sort of formula, if you will, and say, okay, how do sex offenders work? Because you have to understand that uh, when you look in the news, they talk about uh, like the Black Dahlia murder, and they talk about uh, uh, Dahmer and Casey and the, and the clown guy and all those kind mm-hmm. of things, okay? 
and they keep talking about those, even though a half a century ago, is because they're so incredibly rare. What you don't get is that these sex offenders are pretty unique, and they're all different from each other. Okay, so when you find a really crazy one, it's like, oh, look at that one. It's really, you know, let's make a movie about him kind of thing. So all sex offenders are slightly different from each other. Just like all humans are slightly different from each other. So I'm always finding it interesting to, to how do I uh, take this formula, if you will, or, or this, uh, I don't know, policy procedure or a principle, I guess, uh, of dealing with sex offenders and apply it to people. And so you, you get someone who's to me, is fascinating, like that Dr. Larry Nasser, yeah. uh, the gymnastic guy. To me, his personality is fascinating as, as a guy who would want to go interview him getting to confess. Okay, right. I don't think what he's doing is crap, of course. But I look at all the, the components that make him operate, and I'm going, he would be fascinating to talk to. Because some sex offenders are just cavemen, hit right. you on the head, drag you off, and rape you kind of a thing. Right. They're just kind of cavemen. There's no big elaborate fantasy or thought going on here. But I see things going on with him where I'm going, my God, this guy's got a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in his head, uh, and it's all acting itself out you know, in this molesting hundreds and thousands of children repeatedly right. over and over right. and over again. How does that happen? How does he right. uh, allow himself to do that? And, and some of them right in front of their mothers. Exactly. exactly. You know, they would be on the, uh, you know, physical therapy table right. and he had, you know, somehow convinced them that he had to loosen the muscles in their vaginas. And so right. he's having a conversation with the mother, while right. he's got his fingers inside of them right. for their uh, stretched ham- <clears throat> hamstring muscle. Right. Uh, and and again, you're trying to apply normal logic to, to an illogical situation. Right. But Is that a payoff for him, the, the oh, boldness of doing that? No, 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 no. Okay, years ago, I was asked to consult on a case from the, from the county sheriff's office. And the guy was a piano teacher, a keyboard teacher, uh, who also had a little, like a garage band he was part of, you know. And he was a keyboardist guy, right? And he was molesting the kids that he was giving lessons to. He had also written a song that this garage band had recorded and the title of the song was mr cherry popper wow okay which by itself is kind of a red flag okay right but you look at the they wanted me to comment on the lyrics and the lyrics were a fantasy writing where he's talking about this is my fantasy this is what i want to have happen and the way i read it i the way i interpret it was what he is saying is that he wants the parents to hand their children over to him so he can be a gentle lover to them for their first time and have sex with them. And the parents will stand by and say, this is a good thing. Please break my daughter in for me, blah, 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 because we know you'll be gentle, you do the right thing. And it's this fantasy of the child will fall in love with me. It's a rape fantasy kind of a thing. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's what the, the fantasy. So with Nasser, I think we have the same thing. He's saying, mom is allowing me to, to, to basically rape your daughter. Mom's okay with it. The fantasy of of the the victim will like it. It's okay. We'll fall in love with it or whatever. That's going on, and the mom is bringing the presenting the child to me because she wants me to do it. It's that same fantasy that doesn't have any real logic to it. I mean, it's in the world right. of anti logic, which right. I refer to. Uh, but no, it's tremendous. I think it fulfilled his fantasy tremendously. That I'm so good at what I do. Look, the parents are bringing the kids mm-hmm. to me to keep doing it. Right. Oh, oh God, and that would be a dynamite a dynamite avenue to interview him from. Uh, the other thing, too, uh, that people will use as a defense is that, uh, oh, she got wet or, oh, he got hard, you know, which has nothing to do with consent. 
No, absolutely nothing to do with yeah. That's it's yes. That's just the body. The body it's, reacts. The body reacts, and thank God that it does. If not, you have, have all kinds of injuries. You know. Yeah. Um, so talk more about Larry Nasser. What what in particular would would you like to ask him or find out about him? Oh. Oh, and for those who don't know who he was, he was the guy that uh, molested hundreds of uh, female gymnasts. He was the team doctor for the uh, Olympic, U- U.S. Olympic right. female gymnastics okay. team. Well, think, okay, uh, think of, of him as being a rapist, even though there was no intercourse going on, but just think of him behaviorally as a rapist, okay? Uh, how much power control does he have? How, how big is his ego? Okay, he's a doctor, right? That gives you some ego boost. You're a doctor for the Olympic team, okay? You're dealing with all these high-end athletes that are celebrity athletes, people. You're making them perform better, all these giant ego needs. But inside, you're jello, okay? That's that's the typical definition of being a narcissist, right? What do you mean when you say jello, that there's low self-esteem? Right, yeah. yeah, Outwardly, he has this persona he he projects, but inside, he really doesn't have the self-esteem. And is it kind of a way of compensating for the low self-esteem? Sure. Yeah. It's a facade. It's a yes. Uh, yes, persona pretender. You put on, you, you know, I, I have my work persona. I have my right. home persona, you know, gotcha. you, that kind of stuff, right? So he puts this on all the time. And then you add in the rape fantasy. Okay, all women want to be raped, need to be raped. Rape doesn't hurt anybody. If I can just convince a woman it's okay, she'll fall in love with me. Have that kind of nonsense. That's, that's what they think about. So you have you add that in there. At some point, that became a learned behavior to him. And then you have the ongoing nature of the assaults, where these girls are coming back over and over and over again for treatments, okay? Uh, and so to him, that feeds the fantasy that, well, it must not have hurt them because they come back for more right. kind of a thing, okay? And then you have the ones where the mom is watching, okay? Well, mm-hmm. that boosts his ego even more that what I'm doing is okay. Right. So he had the rationale for what he's doing, tells him it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. So my job as an interviewer would be to tap into that and say, well, tell me, you know, what were you thinking? These girls kept coming back over and over and over and over again kind of a thing. How does, how does that work? And try to, to get him to start thinking like a sex offender, okay? But he was so good at it. His fantasy was so good. His rationale was so good. It continued for years and years and years. There was never any um, a rebalancing of the emotional balance beam in his head. So he's been out of balance for a very, very long time. And he just sort of got stuck there, I would think. And that's how I'd approach him, too. I said, look, you know, this probably started for one reason, and it just sort of worked. And so he stuck, stayed with it, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, so you would kind of try to present yourself as their ally who understands. Who understands, absolutely. You know. and, and, and the understanding will push him into the, the, the rationale uh, of the sex offender. Because he has to rationalize that somehow. Because he knows. You know, he's mm-hmm. a doctor. He knows how to do this the right way. Okay, and he knows he's not doing it the right way, but he rationalizes it away by saying, well, it's half right way and half fantasy, but nobody seems, it's like no harm, no foul kind of a thing. Uh, And so that rationale is what I would try to tap into. But he perfected it. You know, it's incredible. He finally pled guilty and then changed his mind. So I really didn't hurt anybody. Right. In court, the judge goes, do you plead guilty? He goes, well, I really didn't hurt anybody. In his mind, he doesn't think he he hurt anybody. He doesn't see it as being wrong. That's a, a tremendous giveaway for what he's how his brain is actually working. You know, when I see footage of Harvey Weinstein in his walker, you know, trying to elicit pity, I'm sure um, I I find myself you know thinking, boy, he really has no ability to self reflect or own his part oh, no. in things. He is a complete and unrepentant narcissist. 
Well, he, he, yeah, he has no ability to understand uh, why he's doing what he's doing. He's incredibly self-entitled. I mean, let's just yeah. say that. I mean, I don't know what his childhood was like. I know if he grew up rich and powerful or he just got that later in life. I don't know. But incredibly self-entitled. Uh, and so he just should be given all these women. You know, to him, it, it's it's like, well, why not? I'm an important guy, so I should just just get it. And that's the kind of where he's at. I don't think there's a whole lot of cleverness with him at all. And there was no force being used. You know, he's just other than his presence and maybe some alcohol or something like that. But he we'd never go down to the mall and kidnap somebody out of the parking lot. You know, that wasn't mm-hmm. uh, who he was. It doesn't mean he's not a sex offender. I'm just right. saying, uh, whatever. But uh, I think you see now. The ability, his concern about if I go into general population, yeah. <laughs> and if, I'm not going to be do very well. So I need right. to be in the prison or the hospital ward or something like that. Right. So he's 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 setting that scenario up. Yeah. I wonder, is somebody like him, how much of his drive for power was based on it feeding his access to women and his control over? Well, that's, a, that's a tough one. You'd have to actually get him to answer that, right? You know, or do they sort of, or is it all part of the same desire for? Power? Yeah, the, yeah. Do they all just go hand in hand, or are they just irrelevant or separate from each other? Was he just a really good movie producer, and he just this power sort of went to his head, kind of a thing, or or was he always a sex offender? They're running parallel to each other. You'd have to right. sit down and talk to him about that. Yeah. What do you think when you hear somebody, you know, say, "Well, you know, he was he was horny." You know, they use the word "horny." Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're talking about somebody who is committing a violent sexual act, because it, it to me it is an act of violence crossing somebody's boundary when they have said right. no mm-hmm. is uh, there is some type of uh, thing in there other than you know uh, I I want to have a sexual release. Well, I, I think what they're trying to say is is did he have a bad pickup line or is he a sex offender? Okay, and that gets a little blurry sometimes. You know, it was just a bad pickup line, uh, or was he going to force himself on this woman anyway? And and the 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 people would say bad pickup line. You're up, assuming that he hasn't touched her at that point. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll look at the girls who walked away and mm-hmm. who got out before anything happened because he didn't force them, didn't you know, choke them out, didn't do whatever. Right. And they say, well, you know, the woman was free to turn around and leave uh, whenever she wanted to. But you also have to factor in, was she an employee? Was he in a position well, of power over them? It's a simplification of, of, the, of what's going on, though. Right. Um, I, I occasionally teach a women's self-defense class geared for sex offenders, and I tell them what they need to be thinking. And to me, if you're going up the elevator to the penthouse at midnight for what basically is a job interview, okay, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to convince him I'm the, great, the best new starlet kind of a thing, okay, it's fine, it's a job interview. But you also need to be thinking, what do I do if he answers the door naked? Okay, because if, if you don't plan for that, then your brain shuts down when it happens. Okay, and people forget the neurobiology of it. In order to come up with a plan, like an escape plan, your brain has to be fully functional. The, the higher intellect uh, parts of your brain have to be working. When you get to that, oh, crap, moment, those higher intellects shut down. And so you get a woman who's all of a sudden in sort of shock. It's like, oh, my God. It's like a guy who's all of a sudden in the bedroom with a gun. If, right. those neuro, if those neurons shut down, you can't think of a plan to turn around and walk out. Right. So what's happening with these women, I think, uh, since they didn't pre-plan it, uh, they're like, uh, what do I do? And, and he interprets that as being consent right. when he knows it really isn't. And they, there's no ever, there's no mutual agreement. And you have a – I talk about the sexual equation where the, the sexual equation has to be equal as opposed to 
oh, let's say the president of the United States and the White House intern. Okay, there's mm-hmm. no equal power there. Okay, he's using his position to, as president to get sex with the intern. The intern's using uh, sexual activity to get close to power. Okay, mm-hmm. the same thing happens with the high school football star quarterback and the freshman girl who just transferred in from out of state. Okay, he has power. He uses that to get sex. She's using uh, her sexuality to be in that social group. Okay, it's the same, mm-hmm. but but the equations. Uh, are not, not, not equal. equal. It's a slant. Okay, I'm using my hands here. I know the people out there in Radio Land can see that what I'm doing here. Um, and so with Harvey Weinstein and these people, we have the same thing. It's a, see, it's it's uh, unequal power. It doesn't mean they both have the, have the same amount of money, but from a social aspect, a consent kind of aspect, are they equals? And what he does when he surprises them is he shuts down that part of their brain that says, "Feet, get me out of here." Right. Okay. Unless they've thought of that ahead of time or they've had some other experiences or whatever, they, they should just, you know, I believe, and we should ask your viewers this, okay, that women have been taught to negotiate their way into and out of sexual encounters, which is fine. That's a good mm-hmm. thing. That's a good thing to negotiate that. But not all of them, or very few of them only, have been taught that there are times when you need to poke them in the eye and kick them in the nuts. <laughs> okay? mm-hmm. And if you've never been taught poke them in the eye, kick them in the nuts, you can't do it spontaneously. Especially oh. when you're in the the moment of freezing. Absolutely. Once you free your deer in the headlights, you freeze up, your brain shuts down. You can't come up with a plan at that point. Right. Okay. Uh, and so they're, they're, the women are stuck, and it's not their fault. I mean, I'm not saying they have this plan they want to you know get this movie part or whatever it is and that's their total thinking and they, and they just get freeze framed and they're, they're stuck they don't know what to do and that's right. what's happening there and this is why the the other people who don't understand this process they'll say well he was just horny and the girls just complied right well, no 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 if you, if you Wait, want, why didn't she scream why didn't she run they don't exactly. understand they, they don't understand you can't because you, that, right. that's part of a plan an escape plan and if you don't have that ahead of time you can't create it on the spot it's not going to happen how many actually are repeat offenders me i think all of them are uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it's may, very rare you catch someone on their first offense right uh yeah you, know, you may not have uh, a history of who they've attacked you know mm-hmm. um we arrested a guy for rape uh many times a lot of guys for rape and he was a, a pretty good artist and we found drawings he was drawing of, of rape scenarios and we had like a bunch of them and his, and his, his wife turned them into us and we were able to identify, okay, this is this girl, this rape over here, this girl over here, some from a location at the train tracks, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And we had a whole bunch more that were never reported, where that we, I, I believe, were actual a documentation of that assault, but the women never came forward. So if we catch a guy on a, on a rape, how many more has he done ahead of that? I, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Actually, if we get him the first time, I doubt it. <laughs> Does incarceration seem to have any effect? Is there any type of rehabilitation going on these days with people being incarcerated? No. What the effect it has is it takes them off the street so they're not, not offending. And it also delays them to where they get older and older and older and their thinking changes a little bit. Maybe their, their, their hormones change a little bit. But think of it this way. When you and I were kids, we learned how to ride a bicycle. Mm-hmm. And we overlearned it, you know, because we kept riding and riding. We could do tricks on our bikes and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Right? So even if you set the bicycle down when you're 18, 19 years old, you can still ride a bike when you're 60, okay? Not, maybe not as well, but you can still mm-hmm. ride a bike. Sex offenders do the same thing. They rehearse the behavior, fantasize, masturbate, fantasize, masturbate. Uh, they rehearse the behavior to where they overlearn it. Now, can they choose not to ride a bicycle later on in life? Sure, but they always can, 
Okay, because mm-hmm. the ability is always there. What happens over time if you keep a guy in prison long enough? Okay, he he his his desire to ride the bicycle and go back to prison kind of diminishes. He's able to sort of see the balance in there. It's not it doesn't really the, the payoff isn't worth it kind of a thing. So he can stop because he chooses not to ride the bicycle again. Okay, which is fine. Uh, which is a good thing. But I don't know that they've been able to rehabilitate them. You have to re- reparent right. them. And I don't and most sex offenders won't go to those programs. You know, they why would they? Because of their they, narcissism and their Well, they don't work. see it as a problem. I, right. Well, I didn't hurt anybody, so what? You know, and so they they don't really go to the those those uh, sex offender programs. Some of them might. I mean, they might. I don't know how successful they are. I don't I don't really know. Uh, uh, yeah, but you get a guy that, that's so dangerous, sometimes you just have to lock him up forever, you know. You yeah. can, is it getting worse, or do we just hear about it more now? I think we hear about it more now. Yeah, I was looking. I was talking to our guys again. I my my uh, uh, base information here is the city I work in, and the number of stranger rapes and stuff we've had have dropped dramatically over the last thirty, forty years. I mean, we used to have serial rapists all over the place, you know, and now it's just not that much. I don't know if it's because we're sending them to prison a lot longer, a lot sooner, uh, or if there's more access to uh, I don't know, girls through the internet or some sort of dating app or something where they become acquaintance rapes as opposed to complete mm-hmm. stranger rapes, which is, you know, um, uh, could be a, a shift of the way sex offenders are performing. Uh, sex offenders, again, they're millennials now, just like, you know, everybody else mm-hmm. is. And so is the is the way they approach society different? Is everything on their app, you know, right. somewhere? And so they meet girls that way as opposed to breaking into the house is a fantasy a little bit different. Uh, I don't know. If the victim is deceased, can a rape kit be required and under what circumstances? Uh, I assume that that person means for the prosecution of of somebody because you couldn't perform a rape kit after somebody was deceased unless it was immediate, immediately well, after they were deceased. if you have a rape murder or you right. have a murder victim, we do rape kits on all murdered, all dead women. Right. Not all of them, but you know, where we think there was a crime involved. You know, right. there's, we find them naked and strangled. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll do rape kits and we'll swab their bodies for DNA and that kind of stuff. But yeah, we do that routinely uh, at the coroner's office. I don't do it. The coroner's office does it. So, yeah, that's fine. You, you can do that on, a, on a, uh, a deceased woman. But you wouldn't do it on someone who dies from old age and you think they were molested when they were 12. Um, you know, right. and, you know, there's a, a time window in there that, that makes it appropriate. So you don't do it on everybody. But, yeah, you can do it, and it's, it's admissible evidence. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, if you... Why the national issue with unprocessed rape kits? It's something that... I think anybody that cares is just their hands throwing their hands in the air, going, "What the fuck?" Yeah, uh, that's real frustrating because I was in charge of that for my city for a long time, and I was always sure that everything went out. Um, and then we had grant money to make sure everything went out again, and we had more grant money, and we, we just did a review here six eight months ago to be sure they all went out. And a couple of them have not gone out where you have. You're 99.9% certain that it was fictitious, okay? There just wasn't anything there. Uh, and so there's a we, – we get a lot of rape reports that come in where the woman says, I think I was raped, okay? And you go, okay, do we have a crime? Do we not have a crime? There's some policy, procedure, protocol things that happen in that in the, those scenarios. And it sort of depends on the agency. You know, the, the only couple ones I didn't send out was we knew that the sample was already uh, contaminated because she had sex since, you know, the, the rape. 
or her story just didn't make any sense at all, and we knew this just wasn't true. This just didn't happen. But you're talking one out of a thousand, you know, kind of a thing. Right. Uh, for bigger agencies, you know, the, that have thousands and thousands of these kits, there's a policy somewhere that, that either isn't being followed or the policy says unless you're we have a suspect or we're not going to send it out or we think it's maybe a little bit hokey, we're not going to send it out. Uh, and it gets down to money, you know, and how many lab people do you have, you know, because you can overwhelm the lab real, real, real quickly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in the prioritization of budgets, why would that be so low? That's be, be, unbelievable. Because the truth is, cities and law enforcement agencies really don't care that much about sex crimes because it's not a squeaky enough wheel. Okay, it's not a, a squeaky enough wheel. Uh, so, th- that sentence is really hard mm-hmm. to digest. They don't really care about sex crimes. Well, they they care. If you ask the chief of police any place, they'll say, oh, yeah, we care, we care, we care, we care. Uh, but it's not a priority because we're not getting sued over it. You know, we get sued for excessive force. We get sued for driving too fast. We get sued for, you know, for crashing and, you know, right. and those kind of things, which is a, a, a problem for us. Uh, and we get, the city gets sued for that, so they protect our liability. But we don't get sued for not catching the rapist or not catching anybody because you know, we don't have, we don't solve 100% of our crimes. But look at it at a national, a national level. Okay. 20 something years ago, Congress passed legislation, uh, and involved, uh, domestic violence. Okay. And so there's a whole bunch of federal money going out to teach people about domestic violence and cops mm-hmm. about, you know, a new laws passed and we got to, we got to stop domestic violence. Okay. That same bill, the exact same bill had an aspect to it that dealt with, uh, sex trafficking, teenage sex trafficking. Congress didn't fund that half of the bill. And so it sat dormant for about 20 years. Okay. Now about eight, nine years ago, they funded the sex trafficking side of it. And now what we hear all the time is sex trafficking, sex trafficking, sex trafficking. Well, the problem has been here for a hundred years, you know, it's not mm-hmm. a big deal, but we're only hearing about it now because it's finally been funded. Okay. So now we have non, uh, these, uh, uh, NGOs or, or nonprofits who are getting money to talk about it and hold classes yep. and seminars and uh, which is all good stuff. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. all good stuff, but it wasn't a national priority. Domestic violence was because it was getting, women were getting killed. And so they, right. They, they made a big deal about that, but they didn't fund the other side of it, which is now funded. So we're hearing more and more and more about that. Um, so that's what I'm saying. It's not a priority. It's not that people don't care about sex crimes. It's just that the, the money wasn't put there. Yeah. It has seemed so cynical, though, that a department would be more worried about getting sued than it would be about getting a rapist off the streets. I mean, because isn't that essentially what it's coming down to? What 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 do you think or feel when that truth bounces around your head? Uh, yeah, what you're saying is, is is very accurate. Okay, we're we're concerned about being sued because obviously we have a, a an obligation to protect the citizens, the taxpayers, and we don't want to do things that get us sued. Okay? You're talking law enforcement, law enforcement and, 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 and government at large because well, when you were in charge, you processed all the rapes. Yeah, we process everything. Yeah, we, we did. And my city has a, a policy: we process everything. We don't right. we, we don't, don't shy away from that. But again, we don't have anywhere near the volume that these larger agencies have. Uh, but it's real easy to pay attention to the squeaky wheel stuff, the stuff that's getting, you know, the newspaper attention and that kind of stuff. Sex sex crimes victims generally don't come forward. We see, we're seeing a whole new thing now about the Me Too people, mm-hmm. which I really kind of like because they're all coming forward. They're not going to be quiet anymore. 
Mm-hmm. This is nonsense. You know, this is still happening. And what they want to have is a national dialogue to change the way that society looks on women and when people should have sex. You know, women can negotiate sex whenever they want to, but the idea of you need to negotiate with me, not just take it, okay, is what we're trying to get into. But that's just happening now. Yeah. Okay, it didn't happen 30, 40, 50 years ago. The first serial killer I arrested was in 1974. He broke into a house, raped a woman at knife point. He didn't realize the serial killer at that time. Uh, I catch him running from the scene, blah, blah, blah. Not good for me. You know, got, got the guy. He got 18 months in prison. He spent, wow. He, he was sentenced to three years at halftime, got out in 18 months, and went on to kill a bunch of women. And it wasn't until 20-something years later, DNA connects him. He's a cross-country serial killer. I had him at 20 years old, and we let him go because we didn't understand sex, sex crimes at that point. And he killed who knows how many. You know. So that's just how it's changed over the years. How much therapy does he need for himself from doing this hard job? (laughs) (laughs) Probably more than I've had. (laughs) Uh, Did you want to expound on that? Uh, No, that's fine. Coming here and talking to you is actually therapeutic to me. Is it? Yeah, yeah, because I have all this stuff in my head, and I feel yeah. like I should share it. I don't. I, my my big fear is is when I retire again sometime uh, that this the, the the working knowledge of what I have will be lost. So I write books about it. Okay, yeah. so you so you don't have to relearn what I took me a long time to learn. Yeah. How many of them feel sorry slash remorse for what they've done and want to stop versus people who deny everything despite evidence and minimize, blame, justify their actions? We've touched on that a little bit, but I think this person wants to know, is there a rough percentage of... I think it would be somewhere between uh, zero and none. I mean, they're they're real apologetic when it, they want to get their prison sentence reduced and right. stuff, you know. Uh, but a true sex offender, no, no, okay. absolutely not. They they again they rationalize what they do and they just they don't think it's a it's a bad thing. Okay. They just don't get it. Uh, why does it take iced tea so long to figure stuff out? <laughs> For uh, I've noticed it takes him roughly sixty minutes to that, to solve uh, a, a a crime. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a. Um, that that's just the way he works. He seems by the by the just before the closing credits, he seems to have nailed down. Yeah, I, I when I watch it, I don't watch that one too much. When I watch those shows, though, I usually solve them in about twenty minutes. Yeah, I, I kind of go, ah, it's that one. That guy did it. <laughs> and we've kind of touched on that one a bit. Uh, step by step, what does a victim of a sex crime go through if they report their crime and how can the process of reporting it be improved that is a great question Uh, so many people who have shared gracie come here so many people who have shared their experiences either as a guest or via the surveys that they filled out have had such re-traumatizing experiences when they do go to report their uh you know the incident um well, that's, that, that is a great question, by the way. Uh, the steps, the, the actual steps are, you call the police and say someone broke into my house and raped me, okay? The patrol officer comes out and they'll they'll do their, sort of like their Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, kind of an interview. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and then they've been taught, defense lawyers have, have 
sort of bent the way that we do some of our interviews. Uh, they ask a bunch of questions that are not relevant at all. Uh, and then they go off to the hospital and they have an exam done and they're hooked up with a victim counselor and a bunch of things. Why do they ask questions that aren't relevant at all? <sighs> okay, ba- again, I've been doing this a long time. Okay, so back in, in my day, defense lawyers would ask us things on the understand, like the victim told you that uh, my client inserted his fingers into her vagina. Yeah. Well, how many fingers did he insert? Oh, you're talking about the defense attorney asking you. No, 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 no. What happens is, though, when that type of question filters back to the patrol cop, he's now asking those type of questions. He doesn't want to be caught on the stand with, because I used to be taught this. Oh, you have to ask in the, preparation yeah. for the no, trial. Because of the, no, because the defense lawyers are asking these questions, we've tried to do damage control and say, okay, we'll answer them first. Okay, so we, so we asked them first, asked the woman how many how many fingers were stuck in there. Well, that, that's not a crime element. We don't care. Right. And were they there for 15 seconds or 15 minutes? That don't matter. I mean, that's not a crime element, okay? But it's been sort of forced upon us by, I don't know, the, 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 the legal system who they think that uh, this is something that a victim should remember. Well, no, I mean, no, it, 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 that's not at all. It's not a crime element. But it's just a, uh, us not not seeing what the true picture is. And it took me a while to, to realize that. I don't really care about that, that, that type of question. I need to know what happened so I can file criminal accounts, okay? But I'm more concerned about what did the suspect say? What did he say to you and when? What did he do to correct a, a sexual dysfunction or something like that? So what I do, I, I would tell a, a woman, I say, look, I'm going to spend 80% of my time talking about how did he talk to you? What did he, did he say? What, did, how, what do you think about him educational-wise, that kind of stuff? And about 10, 20% on the actual sexual stuff because that's just you know, stuff we have to ask. But I want to know what happened over here. Most interviews are just the opposite. They ask 80% about, you know, what had happened, blah, 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 you know, and, and, and it's just overwhelming to, to and, talk and about that. And it seems probably insulting to the... No, uh, that, that, what, what it is, is is rape trauma syndrome is, is probably not a common, it's not used commonly now. They talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. But a part of the rape trauma syndrome that women go through is a denial phase where they deny the, the psychological impact of what happened. And they will also deny some of the physical things that happened if it is really apparent or abhorrent to them, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, if they had to perform oral sex, they, they wouldn't talk about that because it was just something you didn't talk about. So they will leave that stuff out, Well, which is okay. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, you don't have to tell me everything. You're not, you're not under any obligation to. But if the, the officer doing the interview doesn't know that, doesn't realize the reason they're hesitating is because of the trauma they're going through, then he'll, he'll, he'll interpret that as being she's lying about something. She's not telling me the whole truth. Well, okay, yeah, she's not telling you the whole truth. Um, but it's for emotional but reasons. It's, but it's not that she's lying. Lying impl- in, in, uh, includes an intent to deceive for some sort right. of purpose, as opposed to I just can't tell you that much. Right. Okay. And so that's why we do re-interviews and days, weeks, years later kind of thing. Some girls can't talk about it for 10 or 20 years. You know, that something happened. It was so awful. It took them that long to finally deal with it, the emotional impact of it. And I refer, when I lecture, I'll talk to cops about if you've been involved in a shooting, you have the I'm okay, fine uh, syndrome. I'm fine. I'm okay, fine. Well, you're, you're like, you're holding back the emotion of what happened. You're trying to contain it because it'll overwhelm you. Uh, if you don't, it's like if you stub your toe, you want to keep the pain in your toe instead of letting it spread throughout your body. Okay, they're trying to do that psychologically, and that's what rape victims do, molest victims do, uh, and so that's normal. So if 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 we could teach people doing the interviews that that's normal, okay, mm-hmm. then you can roll with it and you can ask something else that's easier for them to deal with. But I think that the reason women have these horror stories is because. 
no one's again we don't have a lot of of, of education on sex crime interviewing i think in the in the police academies sex crimes is probably a two-hour course and they probably show a movie too uh, and, and that's what you get for understanding the law collecting of evidence how to catch a suspect and interviewing the victim you probably get two hours in the police academy do you feel that the average law enforcement person interviewing a victim has a sense of the importance of their demeanor when asking questions mm, i would doubt it if you're talking nationally, I would I would doubt it. Uh, in my county, we do a lot. We have a lot of victim advocates people, and and to get into that assignment, you have to to be kind of slapped around and said, "Hey, this is what you, how you need to behave," kind of a thing. Uh, nationally, perhaps not, because again, training budgets are very 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 slim, and training the sex crimes guy is not as important as training handgun uh, manipulation stuff. Yeah. What percentage of adult abusers were abused themselves as children or adolescents? Well, I think the the percentage of of, of, of suspects who were molested or, or abused is the same as non-suspects, whatever that is, be it one in ten or one in four, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Uh, but the old adage of "I was abused, therefore I became an abuser." Is a bunch of bunch of BS, okay? Because if you look at it from just a mathematical point of view, you have someone who who molested ten children, okay? And then all then each one of those ten molests ten more children, mm-hmm. and those ten more children molest ten more children, okay? Mm-hmm. In a while, the whole planet's been molested multiple times because the math just gets crazy, okay? And since that's not uh, what's happened, then the, the numbers don't hold up, okay? Um, you have uh, whatever the, the normal for non-offenders is, whatever that number is, like say one in ten, mm-hmm. one in four, one. I don't, I don't, I have no idea. The, the, the numbers are kind of wacky because nobody, you know, deals statistics. It's, it's kind of a wacky thing. But there is no evidence uh, that shows that if you're abused, you're more likely uh, to become abused. Somebody used to say this is how bad it was in mm-hmm. in the seventies that if you're molested as a child, you're going to turn out gay. <laughs> Serious, serious. I, I'm going really. Oh my god! And that's where we were in the 70s and 80s. Holy shit! Absolutely, and which is just completely crap. You know, it's, it's crap. Okay, they're they're, to- I mean, they're totally unrelated. It's more crap than you can even think of, right? But that was what the belief wow. was, and I, so I'm thinking this idea that if you're a child molester, you were molested. No, it could maybe, 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 but it's just random chance. You know, it's not a causative thing at all. I've seen people become angry when someone points out the difference between pedophilia and ephebophilia as if making the difference is a defense of the beha- uh, the distinction is a defense of the behavior. Is there any value in making that distinction? We've we've talked about what, what exactly is a ephebophilia. The pedophilia is a, is a sexual preference for pre-puberty children. Mm-hmm. Ephebophilia is a sexual present. Oh, they misspelled post- it. Uh, yep. It starts with an H. They, yeah, there they, was hebephilia and ebephilia. There's two of them. Oh, okay. Uh, and is there a difference between hebephilia and ebe? Yeah, hebe is someone who has a sexual preference for post-puberty girls. Epiphilia is someone who has, or ebephilia is a sexual preference for post-puberty boys. And then there's a generic term, hepophilia, with an H, H-E-P-H-ophilia, which covers both of them. Okay, so pedophilia is pre-puberty. All, all the other ones are post-puberty. Gotcha. Okay, uh, and 
from a legal point of view, no. I mean, they're, if they're molesting children, they're molesting children. Uh, I would deal with it in interview because I know that different types of sex offenders don't like each other. And so if I got a guy who's molesting teenage boys, I'll go, at least you're like, you know, I, you're not one of those pedophiles, are you? He goes, no, I'm not one of them. I like teenagers. They know how, they know what they're doing. It's okay. Oh, thank you. You just confessed, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but from a practical point of view, no, the only thing that society needs to understand is that people who have a sexual preference for post-puberty boys is a tremendously more, a greater, bigger population than for pedophilia. Okay, post-puberty boys are the biggest target population for child molesters around, and nobody addresses that, okay? Uh, we always think of the teenage girl being forced into mm-hmm. sex trafficking. Okay, that happens. Mm-hmm. But but teenage boys are a huge target population, okay? And we don't think of teenage boys. You just like go out and conquer the world, young man, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. They're molested at a tremendously high rate, uh, and we don't address that at all. We haven't really touched on female sex offenders. Is there a let's let's take the stereotype of the uh, you know thirty year old teacher seducing, i.e., raping the thirteen year old boy? Mm-hmm. Um, what your thoughts on? Well, I think I think you have the same thing the uh, that goes on with with male offenders. Okay, uh, you have some women that have a sexual preference for post-puberty boys, a very rare, very small number. And you have some that when they're emotionally out of whack, okay, they act out with age-inappropriate children, which is the old regressed offender, the old regressed pedophilia. Uh, when someone is emotionally unstable, they tend to uh, seek out relationships with someone of an inappropriate age, blah, 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 mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Well, that's the regressed offender type of thing. It's the same dynamic we see. Um, we don't see too many uh using a gun or a knife to kidnap mm-hmm. a boy off the street to, right. to you know see too much of that and it may happen we just don't see it I, I don't know uh and we don't know how much it's it's going unreported um again you know the 16 year old boy you know when the school teacher may not be reported uh and uh, but we've had had several of those where in our own agency we didn't deal with them correctly you know where the parole officer catches the 45 year old sixth grade teacher at three o'clock in the morning in her car with the student and the students buck naked and they go, we don't have a driver's license, kids make her drive you home. And they let them leave. What? Yeah. 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 And then I get it. I have to clean it up. That's what my job as a detective is to clean it up. You know, I'm going, what? At <laughs> the genders have been reversed. So people have been in jail. Right. Right. Uh, but, uh, we still have that sort of uh, go out there and conquer the world mentality for our boys. Uh, and if he gets lucky with the school teacher, Yahoo, um, but I think it happens quite a bit out there. But th- I think the dynamic, the way I would interview the, the woman is the same way as interview a man. Okay. And do you do you feel like you would run into the same uh, minimizing or denying that the the male offender? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And we and we'd see that within our agency, where you'd have somebody hired up going, "Well, what, what's the problem? You know, hey, you know, he's sixteen, he's out there getting some, you know, that kind of stuff." You right. know, we, and, uh, yeah, we'd have to, to, to deal with that with the agency. But yeah, the same thing, well, it's no big deal. Or, or there was, the classic one was, I'm too pretty to go to prison. That was the, one of the teachers said, said that. Yeah, said that. Well, not, not, not in my city, but as on right. the national news. She said she was too pretty to go to prison. And you go, really? Well, that, it, there's a lot of insight into her personality. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, well, she has a lot of insight into what she's doing too, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you see the same sort of a, a rationale processes. It doesn't hurt anybody. The boy wanted it, you know, mm-hmm. what, what the hey, you know. Uh, 
so it was okay. He didn't hurt anybody. He'd happen multiple times, but he'd keep coming back and all that. Well, you know, yeah. you know, boys get an erection every time the wind blows. You know, it doesn't really mean that it's consensual. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before uh, before we wrap up? I just want to plug your your books one more time. Yeah. Uh, Beyond Stranger Danger, Smart Parents Raising Safe Kids, uh, Sex Crimes, a step-by-step guide to effective interviewing of victims and suspects, and the most recent one, uh, Lessons from a 21st Century Samurai, the Seiken Way. Seiken. Seiken Way. The Japanese word means kind hand. Okay. Uh, Completing the Circle. That one kind of answers one of the earlier questions about what do I do for therapy? Okay, I write. Ah. I write. Yeah, I write. And this is the Seikian way is about a friend, a friend of mine who lived in Japan in the in the mid '60s and his experience living there with the little martial arts master kind of thing. Mm. So it has nothing to do with law enforcement, nothing to do with sex offenders. It must nothing, have been nothing, therapeutic. Nothing. Well, it is because it's, I, I'm real accomplishment oriented. So once you get it done, you know, it's, ah, there it is. There's my book. Yeah. You know, and one person bought one. It's oh yeah, you know, and, and because they're not, you know, you don't make any money on books. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a way for me to, to get into something else and accomplish something. Yeah, so that's kind of what I do. That's why I brought it in. But no, I think we got it got it covered. You know, sex offenders, just don't think sex offenders as being little cookie cutters of each other. They're all different. They're all slightly different. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have that many really bizarre, bizarre ones because we're still talking about Ted Bundy and about, you know, mm-hmm. people from 50, 60 years ago. You know, most of them are sort of the run-of-the-mill sex offenders um, that law enforcement needs to deal with better. You know, we really do because the guy who stays in the sex crimes desk nowadays is about two years before they rotate to homicide. Yeah. Uh, and you're just getting warmed up after a couple of years, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so you always have like a new person in there for, for most of your agencies. Yeah. Uh, and this is just a uh, question that I know must be difficult for you to answer. Do you think Jeffrey Epstein actually hung himself? Yes, absolutely. You think he... Oh, absolutely. You don't think it was murder? Oh, no, absolutely not. Okay, okay, okay this is a good one, okay? Yeah. Okay, think think of the, the sex offender who thinks that he's superior to everyone else, okay? Mm. I'm superior. I can go have sex with all these girls and boys mm. and, you know, you know who knows, armadillos, whatever he thinks, okay? He mm. can do that because he's, he's so great, okay? He's now in a position where he's going to be held accountable for that. And he says, I'm not going to let a judge and jury who I see as being inferior to me pass judgment on me. I'm not going to let that happen. I would rather pass judgment on myself than let them do it. In fact, I'll thumb my nose to you. In fact, I'll kill myself before I let you guys pass judgment on me because you're so inferior. Because this is why sex offenders plead guilty. Okay, because they don't want a judge and jury to, to, to pass judgment on them because you're telling me what to do. I'd rather tell myself what to do. I'll send myself to prison. They'll Damn gra- you. They'll grab control wherever they can Absolutely. find it. Absolutely. All power and control. And the ultimate control is to kill myself. I've had several that have committed suicide. And it's just like, okay, fine, you know, you know one less sex offender. Uh, and I, I don't like them to commit suicide because I'd rather have them be prosecuted and we learn from them, you know. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a sex offender committing suicide is not that he feels remorse. It's he's feeling control. And so, yeah, I can I can see him do that. Say The ultimate control is, I'm going to thumb my nose to you. I'm not going to let you guys have the satisfaction of testifying mm-hmm. against me. Yeah. Absolutely. A- absolutely. Well, Don, thank you for for coming in and uh, talking about all this stuff. I always learn so much when uh, when I talk to you. Well, and, thanks for having uh, me. Love it. Thank yeah. you. And love might be a weird word, but <laughs> that's okay. It's, it's, we, it's we very can, uh, enlightening. Yeah. Thank you. Many thanks to Don, and we'll put links to uh, his website under the show notes for this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Native Deodorants and Toothpastes. 
If you've never tried Native, give it a, give it a shot. It doesn't have any garbage in it. No aluminum, no parabens, or talc. It's made with ingredients that you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. Comes in a ton of different scents, like, uh, coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose. That's my favorite. They're also about to launch their new toothpaste. Uh, it has naturally derived cleansers and flavors and whiteners to deliver a great brushing experience and the same clean mouth feeling that you're used to. Uh, there's no risk to try because Native offers free shipping on every order and a 30-day free return and exchange in the United States. Uh, one of the things that I like about their deodorant is a lot of times natural deodorants, uh, they'll get a little foamy when you put them underneath your uh, your pits there. And I also like knowing that there's the ingredients are safe that I'm putting on my body and that my body is absorbing. So uh, for 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code MENTAL at checkout. Once again, for 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code MENTAL at checkout. We are sponsored today by Roman. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, hair loss, or cold sores, you want treatment ASAP. And Roman has spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. So grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you free with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. There are no commitments and you can cancel at any time. I use Roman for uh, ED meds and it is hands down the easiest way uh, and the least expensive way that I've ever tried to to get ED meds and uh, highly recommend it. So if you're struggling with ED, hair loss, cold sores, or other issues, go to GetRoman.com slash mental for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash mental for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Shadow Girl Hunter about her depression. She writes, I feel trapped in a dark room with 10 doors, but they're all locked from the outside and I have no tools to get me out of the room. I feel my bed is the only peace I can obtain. Dreamland is where I find my freedom from this dark room that is my mind. It is hard to overstate the comfort of bed when you're depressed. I I have often wished that when I'm in a funk, my bed had wheels and I could just take care of my errands from the comfort of my bed. I know somebody will probably invent that one day, a smart bed. About her codependency, I can't give up on my parents. They need me. I don't need to eat. I can go a couple of more days and make them happy. About her PTSD, I can't trust anyone. I must stay in this house forever to be safe. About being a sex crime victim, I'm a dog being pulled by a leash with my owner, taking me to an undisclosed location, and all I know is my grandpa has all the power. Oh, that is so dark. 
snapshot from her life. I should feel happy about finally finding a man who wants to have children and is so in love with me, but I'm afraid that once I give birth to our first child, my vagina will get too big and he won't be happy with me anymore and leave me. Every time he tells me he can't wait to put a baby in me, um, by the way, th- this guy is actually taking a full-grown baby and inserting it into her vagina, letting the baby have a little look-see, <laughs> roam around, check out the space, have a seat, and then walk out. Uh, every time he tells me he can't wait to put a baby in me, I want to be happy, but part of me feels scared he's going to leave. My anxiety tells me I should run away and never have children with anyone, so I don't have to fear being with a baby on my own after a man leaves me, but the other part of me wants to stay with this loving man. I've told him my fears of my vagina getting too big, but I am having a hard time trusting he's telling the truth, that he won't leave, that our relationship is not just about sex, and that a man's biological needs won't make him leave me. Uh, Thank you for sharing uh, all of that. Um, I would imagine after having experienced what you did from your grandfather, it's really hard to trust, and it's really hard to believe that a man would see you as anything other than a vehicle for for his desires. Um, and I'm going to give you the advice that my therapist gives me when I start to try to guess what other people are thinking or feeling or what their motives are. People who I have let into my life, and it would be take them at their word, look at what the facts are on the ground are, and that's part of the the risk of being vulnerable, but it's also part of the reward of experiencing that person not letting you down. And yeah, sometimes people are going to let us down, but it's better to try it and occasionally be let down than to live our lives just behind a wall. It's so lonely and small to live a life like that. The challenge to me is not to not ever experience rejection, but to get better at picking people to let into our lives who are trustworthy because the more we do it, the better we get at sensing who is safe and who isn't. This is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Try and Try Again about her depression. She writes, treatment-resistant depression. I so relate to this one. Catching up with people you haven't seen in a while and doing the obligatory update dance, nodding and forcing a smile while hearing about their engagements, career success, travels, and so on, and the sobering, sad realization when it's my turn to share about my last however many years, racking my brain for at least one or two measly positive shareable details, not being able to give the truth that my mental health struggles have completely taken over my life, in the past decade has been spent trying to stay, stay alive and function, feeling like I'm standing still and watching so many of those around me move about freely. Thank you for that. And while I don't feel like that to that degree anymore, I spent years feeling like that, just dreading somebody asking me how I'm doing because I didn't know how I was doing. I felt so numb and detached And it never occurred to me to say, I'm feeling numb and detached and this is an effort and smiling feels like bench pressing 500 pounds. About her bulimia, wanting to peel off my skin and mold my body like a sculptor, 
stitch myself back up, and finally be able to look in the mirror and feel proud of the reflection. Wow, that is intense. Thank you for that. Sending you some love. And speaking of loves, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Winter is Here. And she writes, uh, I love when my therapist says I'm going to be okay. We just had one of the heaviest EMDR sessions to date. And the end, at the end, she hugged me and said she's proud of the progress I've made. I also love that my medication is allowing me to not hate winter as much as I have. I'm a Brazilian living in the Netherlands. It gets cold, too cold for me. So I can take walks and see that even nature has its renewal cycle. So I should allow myself to have it as well. Now oh, that's, that's such a great, that's such a great perspective. I kind of miss the change of the seasons living in uh, California and Los Angeles. There's, there's really two seasons, summer and, and winter. I miss fall and spring. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, and I don't know why it is that spring and fall seem to be so much more melancholy than winter and summer. Maybe because it feels like summer and winter are kind of fixed and fall and spring is the trip to the fixed spot and that there's something, I don't know, sad about the powerlessness of the trip to that recurring place. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a non-binary person who refer refers to themselves as Crentist and about their codependency. My need to control a situation is so strong that if I can't make it better, I better make it worse. That should be a t-shirt. Thank you for that. This is filled out by a same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mercurial. And he writes about his anxiety. It feels like drinking four 20-ounce Red Bulls and sitting in a quiet room. (laughs) It's so good. About his love addiction, it feels like handing someone a knife and then running into it repeatedly and not knowing why it hurts. About his PTSD, I don't know how to explain this one. It feels like you're so scared to fall asleep sleep that it makes you tired. About experiencing sexual bias, he writes, I feel like I'm paying for someone else's debt. About having a traumatic brain injury, I feel stupid because I forget what someone said five minutes ago, but I can remember the phone number of my childhood home and my dad's employee number and my third grade typing class password about his anger issues. It feels like watching someone play a video game with my body. I can see it happening, but it's out of my control. Snapshot from his life. Love addiction. Early in the year, I was forcibly removed from a relationship. She cheated on me, and after a month or so, I found a way to sew my heart and my head back into one piece. Then I go and find someone else, and like an idiot, it hurts again. Shockingly, she didn't cheat on me. She just decided one day, nah, I don't want to do this anymore. Goodbye. I feel stupid for showing this vulnerability that so many of your guests say is something you need to do to have this, quote, happiness that everyone talks about. 
Vulnerability hurts, and I don't want to do that anymore. But I'm sure in a month or so, I'll sweep up this pathetic pile that was once me and shape it back into this gullible fool and see just how much I can get hurt again. Any comments to make the podcast better? I don't know, man. Have me on. I'll come bum everyone out for you like BoJack Horseman at an AA meeting. Uh, my thoughts on the on the love addiction is if if you don't get treatment for that, that might affect the your ability to choose people that aren't going to let you down. Um, it's really, really hard to find a satisfying and even keeled life when we have an untreated addiction because it warps how we view everything. And I'm not saying that that you're hurt and you being let down isn't very real, but you also have an obligation to yourself to improve where you can instead of seeing your yourself simply as a, a no-luck victim of the cruelty of society. And I, I hope that doesn't sound harsh because I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm trying to give you an additional point of view for how you can move towards the life that you want. And Nobody is going to, no one person or people are going to bring us happiness. You know, we have to find that, in my opinion, as a result of doing the inner work, taking a look at ourselves and feeling the feelings we've been shoving down our, our whole lives and learning new tools for coping with life and, and for having our needs met by meeting them ourselves first. Um, and and then we have a platform to go out and meet other people platonically and romantically. And the quality of those experiences is so greatly improved once we do that previous work. And I think getting help for your sex or your love addiction um, would be a great way to give you a, some momentum into, into doing that. And you you deserve it, man. You deserve it. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fart Narcissist. I love when the characters in a novel I'm reading start to nudge the real people out of my brain space and absorb me into their setting. I love the moment when you know regular chuckling is about to become a fit of uncontrollable, inappropriate laughter. I love Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite voice. I love when my unusually tall and increasingly moody 13-year-old uses me as an armrest while we're waiting in line for something. I love that one. I love singing Hall & Oates classics in my car. I do not care for that one. Actually, there's a couple of songs of theirs that I love. Rich Girl is a great song. They just got so overplayed in the 80s on MTV that I have a hard time. Like, if I never hear the song Man Eater again, I will consider my life a success. Uh, continuing, I love clean sheets. I love gorging on watermelon. I love puttering around the house on a weekend in my pajamas with no goals or plans, letting myself find a project I really want to do and not feeling guilty about it. Oh, 
Life is so much better in pajamas. That should be a t-shirt. Thank you for those. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Thick Thighs Save Lives, question mark. She identifies as bisexual, um, is 20, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was about 12, a leader at the youth group I went to asked me to pose for photos where I'd be pretending to be dead for a work project. He said, for a work project, he said. He didn't touch me inappropriately, but I felt really weird about it. He told me to keep quiet about it, and I always felt weird around him after the fact. Yeah, that is that has that is a parade of red flags. Besides that, my mom was always way too open about her sex life, body, etc. in front of me. She always pees with the bathroom door open and will walk through our apartment naked even after I told her it made me uncomfortable. Yeah, that is a form of sexual abuse, sexual violation, whatever you want to call it. She always touched me and smacked my butt without my consent, and whenever I called her out, her response was, it's my body, I made you. That is so fucking narcissistic. And this, there is a type of mother that this fits that is sadly so, so common, and it's so under the radar. I know so many people who have experienced this, and you are not not alone uh, in this. And I actually know a private uh, support group um, with about 50-plus people in it who have all experienced some version of, of this. Um, she also makes free, frequent comments about her sex life and her sexual interests in front of me. When I was eight years old, she told me she had quote, cock on a roll for lunch one day and has made comments about my boyfriend and my and I's sex life, including jokes about my virginity. The stuff about my mom doesn't really make me feel anything. I only recently started realizing that it wasn't okay for her to do that, so I'm kind of numb about it, but in the moment it made me angry, embarrassed, and ashamed. She made sex jokes in front of cousins, friends, and other people, and I was just always so embarrassed that my mom couldn't shut up and be normal. She's never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. I was dating a girl throughout most of high school who would belittle me and gaslight me. Everything I did was bad, and I was a bad person for asking for help and not being able to hide my depression all the time. She would frequently tell me how badly she wanted to be with someone else and how I was boring and just a bad person. During the relationship, I felt so downtrodden and miserable. I truly believed I was a terrible person who did not deserve good things. Now I'm angry about it, but also feel sorry for her because I have a partner now who actually loves me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My ex and I were great friends before we dated, and she understood a lot of what I went through. Everything has been tainted, though. Darkest thoughts. I think about dying a lot, like killing myself through slitting my wrists or overdosing on sleeping pills. But I more than anything fantasize about getting in a car that I don't even have, that I don't even know how to drive, and just packing up and leaving and moving to Canada, maybe. Just running away and never having to see anyone ever again. I want no responsibilities. Darkest secrets. 
And you know what I want to say to that is you don't have to change your geographic location to build a new life. What are your darkest secrets? I think about hurting people a lot, and I get intrusive thoughts about killing or having sex with almost everyone I see, even when I don't actually want to. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being completely dominated, I want to be tied up and gagged, spit on, slapped, and fucked roughly. I want to be abused and raped, essentially, while calling my boyfriend daddy. I feel bad sharing that because he hates hurting me in bed and because it makes me feel like a freak. I don't know why I want to be hurt so badly. That You are not alone by any means in the stuff that, that you shared. And it is no comment on your morality or how you are as a person, who you, you know, who you are as a person. We have no control over what turns us on. And you wanting to share that in bed with a consenting partner, uh, I think is awesome. Um, you know, and as to how you and your boyfriend are going to negotiate that or not, you know, I have no idea. But you should not feel apologetic or ashamed because you are not a freak. You are not a freak. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? It was not my job to raise my own parent. So true. What, if anything, do you wish for? And and people who were parentified as children so frequently have that fantasy, those darkest thoughts that you were talking about, about uh, getting in a car and just leaving your life behind because... In our mind, that's easier than learning how to set boundaries with people who are manipulative and controlling and narcissistic. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind and a brain that can actually balance its own chemicals mostly, but in reality, just a future with my partner where I don't have to worry. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I've told my boyfriend that I have suicidal thoughts but not much of the other stuff. I'm so afraid of being seen as a toxic and selfish person. I can't imagine putting my burden on other people. And that is so textbook for somebody who was sexually covertly incested by a parent. They they brainwash slash groom the child to not have needs so that they are there in many ways as an object for the parent to use because the parent doesn't have any tools to cope. And so the parent is using people and their children are right there and they're convenient and they're easy to use. And it's sadly so common and fucked up. I really, really encourage you to find a support group for survivors of of incest and or find a therapist who specializes in sexual trauma and start opening up about this because there is so much pain and anger and sadness underneath with kids that were parentified and sexualized and not seen. You know, it's like your parent can be looking at you. They can be spending time with you. But they can also be completely looking through you if they're super self-involved and narcissistic. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired, mostly. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Talk to someone. Don't let bad people make you internalize bad things. And I like to think of it as sick people rather than bad people. Yeah, there are some, you know, people who are unrepentantly dangerous. But I think, you know, they're not as common as people who just have shitty coping skills. This is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Charlie Barley. And he writes, is our simple peanut butter, my girlfriend, anything that loves me. I got to wonder, does that, does that include crabs and lice, leeches? Maybe, maybe he's that open-minded. I, I love this one. I love pebble beaches. That's such a good, I love pebble beaches, but I also kind of hate that it's not sand. When I come to a decision, I will let you know. I will fax you the results. And this is a great one. Slow Saturday mornings with coffee. I love when I sit down to organize the surveys before I record, having a big cup of coffee and just going through the surveys. And I also love getting a big cup of coffee and sitting down in a comfortable chair and returning my phone calls for the day. For some reason, it's so much easier to be social when I get that first wave of caffeine in me. And then it's like, after that two hours passes, everybody fuck off. <laughs> Go into your own corner and leave me alone. This is from the love survey filled out by Trixie. She writes, I love the peace and quiet in my comfy chair with a nice cup of tea. That's a great one. This is an awful moment from a guy who calls himself digging up demons. He writes, I routinely look at places on Google Maps that have some significance in my life. Uh, a block away from my house where I first brought my only child home from the hospital, I realized that a block away from it I totally fucked this up. I'm going to start again. I routinely look at places on Google Maps that have some significance in my life. For instance, a block away from the house I first brought my only child home to from the hospital, I realized that was the last spot I received a blowjob from a hooker. I guess I wasn't enjoying enough guilt about the act already. I wonder if Google Maps has a pin that you can drop on the places that you've you've gotten blowjobs publicly. This is from the love survey filled out by an agender person uh, who calls himself, uh, is it themselves or themselves? Themselves. <laughs> How is it that I'm this old and I can't remember? Uh, they call themselves... Anxiety is ring bear. I love when at the end of a day, my head is going 1,500 miles per hour. There's a club fight in my head and there's 40 other people around me when I can just put on my earphones and feel all of that noise and other people slowly fade away and the perfect song comes on to calm down the fight and just let everything float. Then I can float forever. I love when someone smiles at you for absolutely no reason. 
That is such a great one. And it is so rare here in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. I think it's a big city thing more than anything. And I hate it. I hate it. I'm, I always want to say hi to people when they walk past. A lot of times they do. And a lot of people don't even respond. Don't even look. They don't even make eye contact. I love how my sister and I always give each other super long, exaggerated greetings like, why salutations, dearest, beloved, super-duper, trooper, awesome, best personality within the world, Amy. I love a good salutation, too. That is good. That is good. I, I think I'm that person who's guilty of creating too many nicknames for, for people. I love giving people nicknames. A guy calling himself trying to balance writes, I love anime viewing with my 11-year-old daughter. That is such a sweet one. And that is so important for, for that kid. That you're there seeing them. Truly seeing what it is that they enjoy and, and enjoying it with them. It's so much more important than buying them shit. Not that you can't do both, but uh, this is from Michaela B. She writes, I love wearing other people's clothing. There's an intimacy in the feel, the look, and the smell of wearing someone else's stuff. For me, it's like wearing their hug. That's so great. I think women probably get to experience that more than men because I don't think I could fit into any of my uh, girlfriend's clothing. God knows I've tried. And then finally, this is such a great love from a guy who calls himself Evan. He writes, I love singing karaoke with my ex-wife. One of our favorite things to do is to introduce each other to people as, I'd like you to meet my ex-husband or slash wife. It often really fucks with people's heads. They don't know whether we're dating, kidding, or perfect examples of forgiveness and therefore would make an ideal mate or trying to get them into a threesome. Well, here's what you do is that you you introduce yourselves as that, and then the song you sing is, let's have a three-way. I also enjoy riding in the car with her and licking her window on the way to getting coffee. She, she is so understanding and funny, and though we know it would totally ruin the friendship we've rebuilt after a somewhat nasty divorce seven years ago, I still make goofy jokes about having sex, to which she replies, Sorry, pal, the muffin shop is closed. We've known each other for almost 20 years, and of all the women I've been with, she's definitely got the best sense of humor, and she gets me. I can't imagine having a better ex-wife. That is so fantastic. That is so fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you guys for uh, for being who you are. Ooh, that sounded generic and trite. Thank you for filling out the surveys and uh, continuing to help build this this little community we got going with the podcast. It brings a lot of meaning and purpose and, uh, and joy to, to my life. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.